So there's there there are two possibilities going on here. One, you're you're bringing up a term that I have never heard before. The the other possibility is that this is a term I've heard before, but it involves a language that uses pronunciation that's different from Latinate, and so you have no idea how to say it properly. It's an intensely 80s post-apocalyptic schlock film. Oh, and schlong film. You know, it's been over 20 years, but spoilers. Oh, okay. So so the resident Catholic thinking about that, we're going for low Earth orbit. There is no rational here. Blame it on me after. And you know I will. Damien, it is two o'clock in the fucking morning where I am. <laughs> I don't think you can get very much more homosexual panic than that. No, which I don't know if that's better. I mean, you guys are Catholics. You tell me. I'm just kind of excited that like you and producer George will have something to talk about that basically just means that I can show up and get fed. to school for the first time this school year, which is, I think, going to set a record for the earliest I've worn it uh, in a school year. Um, traditionally, I have waited until uh, the last day before we go on winter break um, to do that. But uh, this weekend, uh, this coming weekend, uh, my wife and I are going to be attending an event and uh, it's just going to be easier for me to have the kilt on Um before we get in the car to go there. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to put it on and I'm going to have, have it on in front of uh, all of my sixth grade students. And I'm going to be very interested in seeing how their responses on this site are different from the responses I got on my old site. Uh, because um, I have permanent status now. I can safely get away with this. And I'm in a, uh, I'm in a neighborhood now that there might be more students that are more jarred by this perceived uh, bump against gender norms than uh, would have been at my old site. So it's, uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens. It's going to be fun. Nice. How about you? Well, I'm Damien Harmony, and I'm a U.S. history teacher up here in Northern California. Um, and recently, my partner and I, we have embarked on a uh, just an effort to eat better, lose some weight, that kind of thing. I've set a goal. I've got an app. I'm recording every little thing I eat. Um, and I have found myself, and, and she has found herself as well, um, being mildly obsessed with, with it. Um, and now I'm like acutely aware of the calorie intake and, and what have you. 
And my goal uh-huh. is that I can lose lose the weight that I need to so that when I do go running, I'm not hurting my knees and ankles with with having too much weight on. Okay. So that's, that that's is reasonable. It makes sense. That right? is the goal. Um, but like today, somehow through some strange quirk of whatever, um, I have still 1200 calories to go before I get to my limit. And I'm just like, oh, Shangri-La potato chips. You just saw me eating. It's 1045 at night. <laughs> like, yeah, and I was going to say, yeah. so wait, you're trying to eat better. Yeah. But I just saw you with the Lay's bag in yeah. your hand. Tipping my head back to get the last bit of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah to get the last oily crumbs at the yeah. bottom of it. Yeah, because that that was 140 calories that I have uh, saved up for, apparently. So, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so I what found did you that... eat the rest of the day? Alfalfa sprouts <laughs> and and like air, like <laughs> a fair a fair amount of fruit, um, which uh, low cal for the most part. Um, split a mango with my daughter, had a good quarter cup of uh, blueberries, that kind of thing. I do find that the measurements right. of ice cream to be kind of funny. It's like, hey, would you like a three quarters cup of ice cream? <laughs> huh? Yeah. Okay. But, right. you know, it's it's easier to quantify. So I'm I'm finding yeah. success with it. I'm I'm doing a good job. This is my seventh or eighth day doing it. Um, okay. So I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful. All right. Well, good so, luck. Yeah. Now, last yeah. time we talked about the the president who pre nineteen sixty did the most fucking, um, and that so would, okay. Yeah. So here here's a question though. Sure. You sure. qualify it as pre nineteen sixty did the most yeah. fucking. Do we know mm-hmm. that the president post sixty did more fucking, or are you only qualifying it that way just to be safe? No, I think we do know because okay. both. Uh, uh, JFK and LBJ, um, did all the fucking, um, in the 1960s. Like, I don't think I think they were the Genghis Khans of fucking. Um, I don't think anybody else was was or Attila the Huns. I forget which one. It's, no, it's Genghis Khan. Oh yeah, You're yeah, right it was. Okay, now. yeah. Um, but uh, JFK famously would get headaches if he didn't get laid every every day. Um, oh, that that's like, no, that's garbage. I, I claimed, that's that's yeah. yeah, that's what he claimed. Yeah, yeah, of course, that's what he claimed. But also whatever. Uh, he, <laughs> also, he would like if there was a tour of the White House, like a high school tour of the White House, he would like oh, no. pick out gals and be like, make sure that she gets offered a, a, a internship when she turns 18. So he would do that. And the only person who. Yeah, yeah, it's creepy and ugly. Yeah. What? Yeah. Oh, oh regularly. My God Almighty. Mm-hmm. That's some Gaddafi level shit, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Like, well, yeah. I mean, I I knew. I mean, I understood that he was he was a horn dog and unfaithful to his wife and mm-hmm. and like you know gross like that. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that gross. Like, oh yeah, yeah. That's that's like a whole other tier of. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then the one All guy right. who was bothered by that reputation because he felt that it ignored his own was his vice president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, who nicknamed his penis Jumbo. Um, he fucked everything yeah. from Texas to Washington uh, and back again, apparently. In fact, famously, he complained that uh, that uh, I was going to say FDR, but that would be a different uh, claim. Um, but he yeah. claimed that uh, JFK. uh 
was undeserving of said reputation because he, LBJ, got more pussy asleep than JFK got awake or something like that. I might be paraphrasing, but it was it was that parallel. That that is that is a quote that I could totally hear coming out of Lyndon yes. Baines Johnson's mouth. Yes. That is totally <laughs> on character. That if, is that is on brand. That is if, 110% on brand. If you want to have fun, um go to the <laughs> Lyndon Baines just type in Lyndon Baines Johnson Taylor recording. And T A I L O R. That's that's uh was that uh Hager he was, that was, talking, was talking to the talking to the Hager Hager trousers company, right? Yeah. And he just he's saying, you know, it's, it's... in the middle of talking about it and talking about how you need to take the inseam about well, you need about two more inches up front and then uh, up and up uh, up near my bunghole. Like you have a president yeah. on oh, yeah. on record saying bunghole, yeah. which is yeah. just awesome. <laughs> so it's good times. Oh. Good he, times. He he famously got to the position of political power where he did uh, by knowing where all of the bodies were buried and being willing to put more bodies in the ground. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like I mean Robert Caro. Uh, I hope that he lives long enough to finish. It's we're getting close. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Because Robert Caro is his okay. final final volume of Johnson. Yeah. Um. I had a discussion with uh, actually with friend of the show Beowulf Rockland, okay, uh, who famously came on and did the film noir series with us. Um, but Robert F. Caro, uh, he is getting up there in age, and there's some question as to if he will live long enough to get it done. So, well, here's hoping he does for sure. Yes. So, all right. So, Disney's a thing. It's 1923, right? Um, and two years prior to 1923, from August through September you see the Battle of Blair Mountain, and that's where I left off last time. Right. Yes. Okay. So the Battle of Blair Mountain happened in Logan County, West Virginia. Okay. Of all places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had forgotten. I had forgotten it was Logan County. All right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was itself preceded by two years uh, of of the, the mine workers coal strike of 1919. Okay. And shit's yeah. about to get complicated as opposed to before. Uh, and then I promise I'll get to Buster Keaton. Uh, yeah. So, so it's 1919. You've got the Palmer raids and the Red Scare, right? Yeah. And it wasn't without merit that they were actually scared uh, because there were a lot of anarchists and communists uh, coming over. In fact, even though Palmer had already planned his raids, they almost seemed retroactively justified when anarchists began a bombing campaign through the mail against anti-anarchist publishers, journalists, and politicians, and anti-immigrant journalists, publishers, and politicians, and anti uh, and certain clergy and prominent businessmen. From April through June of 1919, there were more than 30 bombs that got mailed to select targets, resulting in the injury of two people and the death of two people. Uh, this included Woodrow Wilson's attorney general, the newly appointed Mitchell Palmer, at his home. Uh, of course, at this time, it was also Red Summer when more than 30 race riots erupted throughout the U.S., and there were a number of strikes that year as well. Uh, but the responsible party was called the uh, Galeanists, named for Italian anarchist Luigi Galeon. Galeon. Yeah, okay. Okay. 
they tried bombing a who's who list from people that I'd mentioned in the Idiocracy podcast, as well as the future commissioner of baseball and known asshole on the bench, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Um, okay. There were lots of people to bomb. Now, the two bombs were aimed at Palmer and they failed, although the second one was so powerful that the bomber's body parts landed across the street on his neighbor's porch. Wow. So I guess I guess hey. you wouldn't call that the bombing failing so much as they they the target didn't get hit. I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Depends on where you where you draw the line for failure. Mechanically, great success. Yeah, the bombing was a success. The bomber tactically, died. yeah, tactically complete failure. Yeah. yeah. Now his the neighbors' own are, goal. In his, fact, yeah, his neighbors across the street were none other than Secretary of the Navy Franklin Roosevelt and his wife Eleanor. Okay. Yeah. And they had walked by mere moments before. Um, now, attached to each bomb, as was consistent with Galeon's approach of propaganda, was the following short manifesto. Quote, war, class war, and you were the first to wage it under the cover of the powerful institutions you call order in the darkness of your laws. There will have to be bloodshed. We will not dodge. There will have to be murder. We will kill because it is necessary. There will have to be destruction. We will destroy to rid the world of your tyrannical institutions. Okay. So that's, this is, yeah. that's a manifesto for sure. Um, so you've got this bombing campaign going from April to June, right? So Palmer, yeah. having had his house attempted bombed twice, yeah, I can get why he's doing the raids. I can, I can well, understand. Yeah, I can, yeah. yeah. So here, here's here's a question. So mm -hmm. what the, the phrase that, that or the the ism that mm -hmm. kept getting mentioned at this point was anarchism. Yes. As opposed to socialism or communism. Was there in the media of the time mm -hmm. a conflation of them? No. In okay. Yeah, so and that's anarchist. the thing about Palmer. Yeah. Okay. Palmer is specifically anti-communist, and communism was a brand new kid on the block. Anarchism okay. was kind of already going on, had been for yeah. a while, killed a president um, with McKinley. Yeah. Um, and uh, anarchism was tied directly to immigrants, specifically Italian immigrants and some other South uh, South European immigrants. Whereas communism okay. was considered more Slavic. It was considered more organized. Communists had just taken yeah. over Russia. Um, and, and you know, yeah. anarchism and organized are not generally, you know, uh, uh, terms that you find linked very tightly to one another. Right. right. So, okay. So, yeah. Now that gets us to the coal stri strike of 1919. Okay. Most of the country had soured on the Palmer raids. Okay, so the Palmer raids happen and everybody's like, eh, what are you doing? Like, even though he was kind of retroactively proven right by the fact that there were anarchist bombings, they're like, no, yeah. but you didn't actually do that. And most of the country was like, no, that's not really the job. Believe it or not, back then, people didn't think it was really the job of the government to police the people. Um, this leads to okay. John Llewellyn Lewis, who was a labor organizer, and he managed to unite the causes of and the grievances of almost 400,000 coal workers by 1919. Now, the shortest okay. version that I can think of is that the labor organization agreed not to put up much of a fight for wages during the war because there was a war on. 
But afterward, there'd be a lot of effort to make everybody whole again. Okay. Now, given post-war economic boom that the United States enjoyed, supplying a starving Europe meant to, uh, meant increased production and more profits, in 1919, coal miners figured, okay, now it's our time. And of course, immediately Palmer enacted the Lever Act, which itself was a wartime act. So what the actual fuck? The war is over. Mm -hmm. And the Lever Act was supposed to guard against hoarding and price gouging. Okay. And he enacted it against the unions for the first time ever. Um, wait, what? Yeah. So, so Palmer takes an act that's meant to stop hoarding and price gouging by the people who own the means of production. Yeah. And he used it against the people who are like, hey, we put up with a lot. We produced a lot. And we didn't ask for big raises during that time. Now it's time. And he's like, you know what? We've got a law against that. And it's like, no, that's not what that law is. Why are you what? So 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 he's trying to use a price gouging law mm -hmm. to prevent negotiation of pay raises. Because he said Because he's equating mm -hmm. that with price gouging. Well, he's saying that if you uh interfere with the production or transportation of wartime necessities like coal. Therefore, you were in violation of the Lever Act. It's it's not wartime, and but it wasn't wartime. It was a wartime necessity. Yeah, fuck all the way off anyway. Yeah, yeah I know. Uh, I know. Um, and like, and going on strike isn't the same as hoarding. But yeah, it was written in not... such a way that he was able to do that. Wow. All right. And and since he's an anti-communist, of course, he's going to have a mad on against labor unions anyway. Right. Exactly. Because, yeah. All right. Yeah. What so Palmer figured that he'd have tons of support doing this, and he sought an injunction against the coal miner strike that was planned for October 31st. Okay. The strike lasted from then through November, and shit gets cold in November, so you know that coal supplies are starting to run low. Yeah. Which means that public sentiment starts really pushing the government to end the strike, despite massive amounts of missteps and disagreements within Wilson's administration. Yeah. And the involvement, uh, this, this involves both furious negotiations between the government and the miners, as well as the deployment of 20,000 troops with guns to protect the scab labor during the strike. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the strike ends in December with a 14% wage increase. All right. That's not what they deserve, but it's better than a sharp yeah. stick in the eye. Yeah. So, okay. Well, they got those right. too, but now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this strike was, was very much definitely on the mind of both union folks and anti-union agitators. And there's so much more that I want to get into on this strike, but I'm trying to confine my analysis to the specifically pertinent subject. So I'm going to move on beyond the 1919 strike, but just recognize it ended in December. It was yeah. a union victory. But the government had taken a stand and there had been a strike and there had been soldiers. Right now, there's a fellow named William Sidney Hatfield. Smiling Sid to his friends. Two gun Sid to his friends and others. He was born in uh, 1891, possibly 1893, depending on the records that you're looking at at the time. Okay. He was the son of Jacob Hatfield and Rebecca Crabtree. Okay. 
Jacob Hatfield was the son of Jeremiah Hatfield, who himself was the half-brother of Valentine Hatfield, the father of Big F. Hatfield, who was Devil Ants Hatfield's father. Okay, so this guy is a... Cousin. Cousin once removed of Devil Ants. Okay. Mm -hmm. Smiling Sid got his name for the gold caps on his teeth, and I assume the two-gun nickname wasn't because of his having big ears. Yeah. Right. Now, William Sidney Hatfield, Sid, grew up fighting and drinking hard, so like most of his family. Yeah. Yeah. Now, early on, he worked the mines, and he was an assistant to a blacksmith. The mayor of the town of... Uh, I I should have looked up the pronunciation on this because it comes up a lot. It's called okay. it's Matewan. Matewan. M-A-T-E-W-A-N. Okay. Matewan. Matawan, Matawan. So it'll be interchangeably mispronounced, and I apologize. Okay. Um, but uh, the mayor of that town, with which is within Mingo County, uh, uh, he appointed big. He appointed Smiling Sid police chief, which was a surprising move to most because Smiling Sid was uh, a big fighter and big drinker. Yeah. Um, but from the jump, Smiling Sid Hatfield and the mayor of this town were big supporters of the United Mine Workers of America, the union that was founded in Mingo County in 1890. Okay. Most of the towns in Mingo County were mining towns, and specifically company towns of mining companies that were decidedly anti-union. The result was that if you were unionizing or suspected of unionizing, you'd be fired and thus turned out. And now you have nowhere to live because they're company towns, right? So naturally, this meant that the place to really focus union efforts was Mingo County. Okay. In 1920. So John Llewellyn Lewis responds to the pressures uh, of, of everything that's going on by doing exactly this. And after the strike of 1919 had ended, Lewis and Mother Jones, at that time who was 83 and more of a badass than we could ever hope to become, mm-hmm. And a guy named Frank Keeney, the president of the local coal miners union district, went into Mingo County to unionize the workers. And the result was 3,000 miners in Mingo County unionizing in 1920. They were all summarily fired. Wow. Yeah. By the way, I looked up the pronunciations. Maitwan. Maitwan. Okay. So Maitwan. Now, in May of 1920, the private detective firm of Baldwin Feltz was hired by mining companies in the area to evict fired miners from the town of Maitwan. Okay. Okay. Now, private detective firms historically are anti-union. This was no different. Lee Feltz. Yeah, I, I, I was, I was going to make a remark about. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed it wasn't the, uh, the Pinkertons, but okay. Yeah. 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 I think they operated a little further west, to be honest. Oh, okay. Um, And it could be that uh, these guys were the lower bid. (laughs) So True. So Lee Feltz and Albert Feltz, who were brothers of the co-founder of Baldwin Feltz, were also in town in Maitwan. Albert Feltz had arrived in advance of the other detectives who came into town, and he tried to bribe Mayor Testerman with a $500 to place Baldwin Feltz machine guns on the town's roofs. Wait, hold on. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> yeah. Private investigators. Yes. I'm putting investigators in quotes now. As you should. Wanted, wanted to put 
machine guns. Yes. On the roofs of buildings in town. Yes. And they came with $500 to bribe the mayor. To bribe the mayor to mm-hmm. to do that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, it, if the name Baldwin Feltz is tickling your brain, it's because they were the group that was largely responsible for the Ludlow Massacre in 1914. <laughs> because, yeah, okay. So yeah. machine guns. Yeah, of yeah. course. All right. Because they, along with the Colorado National Guard, opened fire on striking coal miners and their families. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, the Baldwin Feltz detectives came to town trying to bribe both Mayor Testerman and Police Chief Hatfield and, of course, failed to do so. They then went to start evicting families on behalf of the Stone Mountain Coal Company at gunpoint in the rain. Wow. So like, nice. yeah. But it's obviously uh, baddies. Like, <laughs> did, did does this not a, like, no, this really is, comes with a paycheck. Jesus. Yeah. All right. So, and remember, Meituan is newly pro-union. Most places yeah. are are anti-union at this point, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is amazing to me. I mean, again, talk about the ability to to convince a man, uh, yeah. you know, to do against his own personal interests. Yeah. Now, Hatfield, Smile and Sid Hatfield, yeah. deputized several miners. And okay. he met an arriving party of about a dozen Baldwin Feltz detectives at the train station. And Smiley and Sid approached Albert Feltz, first telling him, quote, Albert, if what you're doing is according to the law, you can do it and I won't interfere. But if what you're doing is not the law, you've got to stop putting people out of their houses. Okay. All right. That's that's as reasonable as one can be in that right. circumstance. Now, failing at that plea, Hatfield informed Albert Feltz that he was placing them all under arrest and that he had a warrant to do so. Albert Feltz then produced a warrant saying, I'll return the compliment. I've got a warrant for you. And he showed a warrant signed by a justice of the peace in the Magnolia District, which was also in Mingo County. The detectives had a submachine guns in their suitcases and they had Sid surrounded. Isaac Brewer, a local policeman, sat back and did nothing. Feltz said, quote, we'll take you up to Bluefield on the train that's due in seven minutes. We'll ride on the Pullman, Sid. Sid, living up to his name, smiled uh, and said nothing. He knew at this point that they were edging Sid to the end of the train platform and planned to do away with him and then hop the train, which would only be stopped for a minute before departing again. Sid, in turn, began to back away toward the Chambers hardware store. Isaac Brewer came up behind Sid in the hardware store. Mayor Testerman came running down the street and said to Albert, quote, I understand you are arresting my chief of police. I need him for his duties here to protect the town, and I'll give bond for him. I'll give any amount of bond you name. I'll give the whole bank as security. Feltz then rebuffed him, saying that he was going to take Sid to Bluefield. Testerman asked why not to the county seat over in Williamson. Feltz repeated that he's going to take Sid to Bluefield, at which point Mayor Testerman asked to see the warrant. He examined the warrant and declared loudly that it was a bogus warrant. Now, I've gotten most of this from newspaper accounts at that time. The following account was from the New York Liberator, May of 1920, uh, May 20th, 1920. So it's not an objective source, just like me. Yeah. Quote, 
Then Albert draws his gun and shoots from the hip into the mayor's stomach and then wheels quick and fires at Sid. The bullet misses Sid and goes through Isaac Brewer's right lung, paralyzing his gun hand and him being a man that can't shoot with his left. Sid drawed two guns, one in each hand. He put a bullet right away through Albert Feltz's forehead that came out the back of his neck and then one through Cunningham's head, shooting for the head because of us being under the impression them fellows always wear a coat of nails. The 10 detectives and Lee opened up heavy on Sid with Colt 45 automatics in each hand, but the close-range shooting had made a smoke cloud around Sid so they couldn't aim on him good. One of their bullets knocked Sid's Smith & Wesson 38 out of his hand, but he walked toward them using his 44. By now, all the guns in action, or all the guns was in action, the prettiest lot of artillery you ever seen. Lee Feltz had stood emptying a Colt's forty, uh, a Colt's automatic forty-five at Sid, except one shot he turns and kills Tot Tinsley, which was a boy of eighteen that ran past him into the vacant lot. Then Lee put the empty empty gun back in the holster and drawed another, which he aimed steady with both hands at Sid. Somebody seen Lee and pulled down uh, with a high power. The bullet goes through the heart of Lee, and it seemed like he jumped 10 feet up and he fell back on his back with his mouth open and his arms spread out and his Colt's 45 still in his hand. A coal digger seen it and jumped over Lee and kicked the gun out of his hand and caught, up, uh, caught it up and put it into action. None of the guns was idle. With Albert and Lee Feltz and Cunningham dead, the detectives broke and run around the post office corner. One of them got into the little lemonade stand that was standing on the sidewalk, him thinking kind of funny that the thin boards would stop the bullets. And one tall, skinny office detective run for Dr. Smith's office in the one-story brick building back of the post office, aiming to fight from there. But a young coal digger had run in before, him being unarmed, and when he seen the detective at the door with a gun in each hand, he thought the, he thought the guy was coming for him, and he picked up a gallon bottle of medicine and busted the detective plumb on the head with it. The guy fell back with his eyes popping out, and somebody put two or three bullets in to make sure while he was falling. When Sid got plumb around the corner, there was a Baldwin Feltz man across the side street, and he fired at Sid, but Sid got him. Another detective run around the bank corner and run plumb into Bob Mullins, and he shot Bob dead, and then he turned around and made a stand. He was shooting from behind the back corner, and he was hard to get because of Sid's bullets clipping the corner bricks. But soon he was got through the shoulder, and he turned and run. There was a red-mustached fellow lying on the sidewalk with his legs broke by bullets, and he kept shooting at Sid, and Sid got him. Sid quit smiling and told me, quote, That one with the red mustache, I disremember his name. He sure, has had, he sure had guts. The rest of them ran past Chambers' hog lot toward the river. One detective that had got shot through the bad, or who had got shot through bad, he went up the river to wait across, but he seen he couldn't make it, and he come back up to where a widow lady lives. He come in the door, and he says, Lady, I'm shot through. Lady, let me come in. If you will shelter me, I will give you $2,000. But the lady said, Oh, God, you can't come in here. If you come in, I'll have to get out. And the fellow went down on the road, and somebody fired a shotgun, and he fell dead. Everybody left off shooting and came back up. And there were seven dead detectives laying in the street and four coal diggers wounded and the mayor, uh, the mayor, the same as dead and Bob Mellon's dead and Todd Tinsley in the vacant lot. And the train for Bluefield hadn't come in yet. Somebody told me something that they said was very important about an investigation, but I disremember what it was. When the gunplay begins uh, again on battle scale in Mingo and Logan, 
I hope you will understand how it came or how came it. And when Sid Hatfield is tried for the killing of Albert Feltz, I hope a plenty of people will back him up for his defense, for I think he's the kind of man the world needs more of. All right. So kind of okay corralish in terms of like all of a sudden there's a shit ton of violence. Yeah. People running and, and like a lot of action. So this was this was in the paper in in May 20th of 1920, shortly after this Jesus. happened. Yeah. Now, when all was done, three people from the town lay dead, including one involved, one uninvolved bystander and yeah. seven from the agency, including both Albert and Lee Feltz. In fact, Albert fell from the first shot after he'd shot Mayor Testerman and then escaped into the nearby building. Smiling Sid found him and shot him to death inside the uh, Maitwan post office. And at this time, the Baldwin Feltz agency was seemingly untouchable. So suddenly he kills two brothers of the founder. Yeah. And then five other guys. Right. And at this time. So yeah. yeah. Go on. So they're going to have a real mat on to, mm-hmm. to make sure they make an example of him. Right. Yeah. So Hatfield touched the hell out of them when they were untouchable. And <laughs> <laughs> touch, touch, touch. Sorry. Just yeah. The way you phrased it. It's like, um, touch. And you. this this will absolutely embolden the miners in the area to push the Baldwin Feltz detectives out of town completely. Like, well, I don't give yeah. a fuck what you're here for. We yeah. we kill your people. Yeah. Um Mayor Testerman died later that day. He was gut shot. Um yeah. Hatfield gained a folk hero type of status amongst the town, and he inspired quite a bit of union minor activity after that. Well, yeah. Now, the story gets weird from here, though, because within 11 days of John Testerman's death, John Testerman, I believe it's John Testerman, of Mayor Testerman's death, Hatfield was found in a hotel room with Testerman's wife, Jessie. Yeah, okay. So, takes after his (laughs) not direct ancestor. Right. Yeah. They married that same day, having been arrested for, quote, improper relations. Now it's 1920. So my best guess. Sexual morality laws were so goddamn weird back uh, then. My best guess is that it was oral sex, which was still illegal in in uh, in a lot of places. And it was something that was thought of as as something that only gay men did in many parts of the country. So I got to feel. Yeah, I know. Okay, whatever. So I I tried to get as much research as I could on on the prevalence of oral sex in the United States in the 1920s. Um, most yeah, of what I found were a couple articles discussing how when GIs would come back from World War One, they were asking for the French way. Um, hey, so, good lord! All yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So. Uh, Albert and Lee's brother, uh, Thomas, uh, began to spread the rumor through his labor spy, Charles Everett Lively, that Hatfield had killed Testerman to get to Jesse. Lively had been so successful as a union spy starting in 1912 that he actually had been selected as a union delegate for the United Mine Workers of America. And he even got close enough to be photographed with Mother Jones herself. Fuck that guy. Yeah, I know. Like super scab. <laughs> like wow. Yeah. Like recognize <sighs> the talent, but man, fuck yeah, you. Yeah, you no, know. you're evil. Yeah, yeah, okay. Fine. As but... as a friend of mine who's a comic, uh Saul Trujillo said, um, it's like being Mexican and liking Taco Bell. Like 
it's not authentic, but you gotta re- you gotta recognize skill. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, okay, all right, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Charles Everett Lively is spreading this rumor. Um, he has been uh, photographed with Mother Jones herself, being undercover. He remains undercover, and he used his restaurant to uh, as a meeting place for many union organizers. And of course, that enabled him to gather information for Thomas Feltz, as well as to disseminate rumors and unrest, right? So not only is he serving up dinner and listening to what they're all saying and reporting back to Thomas Feltz, but also, yeah, but I heard so-and-so did such and such. Like just so so what we're saying is we we shouldn't use the term quizzling. We ought to use this guy's name instead. Yes. Yeah. Fuck that guy. Right? All right. So so yeah, he's doing that. Uh Thomas Feltz publicly said that he wanted to see Hatfield hanged for his brother's deaths. Um a fair thing to say if your brothers get killed, I guess. Uh although I would look at the circumstance, but then again. I've rejected as much of my uh, my family's lineage as I could. Um, Lively was actually instructed to specifically target and cultivate relationships with the miners who were involved in the battle itself and to gather information that would be used as evidence in the trial against Hatfield. I'll get back to that in a minute. Interestingly, Jesse Testerman later disclosed that her husband, the mayor, had asked Hatfield specifically to take care of her and her son when he died. And since Testerman and Hatfield were good friends, it's entirely possible that this was the case. Okay, yeah. Um, or this Still could be her retconning. Bit, yeah, it could be her retconning. And and who knows? Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. We we don't we don't have any way of knowing what what the interpersonal anything between all right. of the players there was. And we don't really know what they were caught doing because newspapers at the time are not objective sources in any way. And the way yeah. to sell it is to put sex on there. So yeah, was, was one of them going down on the other possibly could it have been just, he was holding her and she was sobbing also possible, but he does marry her 11 days later. Yeah. So now that summer, uh, union miners got involved repeatedly in skirmishes with non-union miners, specifically up and down the Tug River. There were a number of miners' families living in tents up and down this river and along its tributaries and eddies. And meanwhile, the governor of West Virginia ordered yeah. uh, he ordered state-based martial law in Maytuan, uh, which Hatfield complied with, turning over all of their weapons. Okay. Yeah. Now I watched a short documentary on this, uh, one from the time. So it's very much a newsreel documentary. It's only about three or four minutes long. Um, it's all silent. And I saw the very staged moment when they turned over their weapons to the state police. Okay. The union went on strike in July, which precipitated massive violence on the part of the strike breakers. And then the strikers defending themselves. Boxcars got blown up, strikers got beaten up, and they were left to die from their attacks. Woodrow Wilson himself weighed in on this, offering the National Guard and bringing in federal-based martial law. Now, the first trial about the Battle of Maytuan took place from January through March of 1921. Charges were brought, but all defendants were acquitted of all charges owing to self-defense. 
This trial included Hatfield and brought the name into the national headlines again. So now, uh-huh. Uh-huh. okay. So Hatfield was happy to have it, by the way, and he posed regularly for pictures with reporters. Uh, he even appeared in a short film called Smile and Sid, which appears to have been uh, an internal United Mine Workers film. Um, which, okay. yeah. yeah. Now, leading up to the trial, the coal company offered $1,000 to any coal miner defendant willing to turn on Hatfield and on the defendants and to testify in favor of the prosecution. Wow. Pretty bald-faced. Yeah. Um, Any of the 22 who did so would also have all charges dropped against them by the coal company because they were, like, charging everybody who was anywhere near it. Nobody turned. Well, Charles Lively got one defendant to turn. Isaac Brewer. Really? Yeah. Huh. Now, this is mostly because Lively, Lively gave him free liquor and free meals. So, again, it just kind of goes to show that, like, waterboarding isn't necessary. Making friends with people is necessary. Yeah. So, the joke was on Lively, though, uh, ultimately, because Brewer's testimony was wholly worthless. During the trial, Lively himself became the prosecution's star witness, despite not having witnessed the shootings about which the trial was. So most of his testimony was based on what he'd heard as a spy for the coal companies, specifically for Baldwin Feltz. He testified that Hatfield had started the gunfight and shot Testerman because he wanted the mayor out of the way in order to court Jesse, and because Testerman was getting too close to the coal companies. The defense pointed out how fucking stupid this was, and it went nowhere. But now Lively was outed. That was the next thing I was going to ask was like, yeah, this was finally the moment where everybody went, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He left town after the trial. He never came back to mate one. (laughs) (laughs) No shit. And the union, (laughs) the union expelled him for 99 years. I love that. Me too. I love that. Not, not just life. No, no. 99 years. There you go. Like that. Now, at the same time, almost 80% of striking miners signed yellow dog contracts. Now, for the the audience at home, yellow dog contracts are agreements to not join unions. And because things were getting depressingly violent, remember a lot of them are living in tents along the Tug River, they needed work. Now, Sid Hatfield was still a problem for the coal companies and for certain of the state authorities because he had turned the jewelry shop of the late Mayor Testerman into a gun store. And that gun store sold primarily to union supporters. So, well, damn right. Yeah. John now, Brown it, Gun Club. Exactly. Now, in Forever. May, union miners took their guns along the Tug River to more than just violent skirmishes. And it was called the Three Days Battle, I think, because it lasted for three days. And the whole Tug Valley was immersed in internecine violence. A truce was called after that, and martial law was instituted by the state. Now, you can imagine how it was enforced and against whom. Uh, The result was hundreds of miners were arrested over the slightest provocation, while their non-union counterparts faced no such repercussions. And this led to the union miners taking to the hills guerrilla warfare style. Yeah. Yeah. Now, West Virginia State Police was was a new institution at the time, and it was led by Captain James R. Brockus, known in print as the meanest old son of a bitch. That's 
<sighs> okay. Yeah. Now, Brockus had served in China during the Boxer Rebellion and in the Philippines during the American occupation there and in Texas during the Mexican Civil War and in World War One. Okay, so he has he has plenty of experience in crimes against humanity. (laughs) Got it. Yes. He's also cool under fire, capable of great violence and has no problem dispensing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Hardened hardened son of a bitch. Okay. I didn't look up whether or not he and Smedley Butler ever crossed paths. It'd but I mean they're in the same spots. Out. Yeah. I, they they got they have to have. Like they were so, in the same so, spots. Yeah. So based on Boxer Rebellion and Philippines and World War One. Was it and well it, yeah. yeah. But but the the first two make me wonder was he was he Marine? Um or or Army. Do you know I think he was Army. Okay. Yeah. So, but either way, he musters out and he he quickly rises up the ranks of the newly created West Virginia State Police, becoming the captain of the organization. Um, On on June 14th, so after the trial, right? Right, right. Okay. On June 14th of 1921, uh, there were reports that someone at the tent colony had shot a car carrying the superintendent of the White Star Mining Company, while it had passed through the colony. Major Davis, Captain Brockus, and Sheriff Pinson headed out uh, to the tent colony to investigate, and they themselves were fired upon. They returned shortly after with state policemen and vigilantes prepared to do a raid. But by the time the raid was over, Alex Breedlove, a striking miner, was killed. Martin Justice, miner and president of the tent colony, was injured, and another 47 miners were uh, striking miners were arrested. The state police shredded their tents and broke all their belongings. The arrested miners were all marched to Williamson and crammed into a single jail cell. Because of course they were. Yeah. And yet, on the same day as the raid, the state Supreme Court deemed the conditions of martial law in West Virginia unconstitutional. It was actually illegal for a martial law mandate to be enforced by civil authorities rather than military authorities. Okay, that makes sense. So, now we're in July of 1921. During a Senate hearing, Charles Lively was called to testify. He was scolded by a senator who said that union infiltration was, quote, not right, uh, which I like. Um, okay. Lively's, Lively's rejoinder was that if, he, uh, if, if the union knew that he was an infiltrator, the union would have killed him. Um, yeah. That's that that's true and that's not okay, yeah. but you shouldn't be doing this thing. Like saying what yeah. they would do to you afterwards isn't, isn't a justification. Isn't for a you justification doing for doing it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Now Lively wasn't done with Hatfield either. He supplied information that placed Hatfield and his friend Edward Chambers in Mohawk, West Virginia, which is one county over from Mingo County in McDowell County, which is an anti union county. There, they were accused of enticing union miners to shoot up a non-union mining encampment. And this meant that he was charged with conspiracy. Now, Lively gave secret testimony that led to these charges. He claimed that uh, Hatfield had persuaded the miners. Oh, no, no. Um, No, he claimed that he himself had persuaded the miners. Uh, in his restaurant to arm themselves and shoot up the non-union camp and dynamite a coal triple or coal tipple in Mohawk. 
Um, now, this leads to if they did that, then they're the ones guilty because for some reason that's not entrapment. Um, and yeah. this will this leads to charges and to the need for Hatfield to present himself to the court in Welch, the county seat uh, of McDowell County Courthouse. Okay. So right. uh, the union miners testified that the mine guards in McDowell County were the ones who did all the shooting when they arrived and that they had to leave as a result. And further, the union miners stated that this was all a ruse to get Sid Hatfield into McDowell County in order to kill him at the behest of Thomas Feltz. So now it's August 1st, 1921. Edward Chambers and Sid Hatfield show up in Welch, which is in McDowell County. They're going up the steps with their wives, entirely unarmed. They were promised safe passage and guaranteed safety by the McDowell County Sheriff, Bill Hatfield. Okay. And there were a number of good reasons for the county sheriff, Bill Hatfield, to have made such a guarantee. First, of course, there was the union, anti-union stuff going on. But also, there'd been a murder in the streets of Welch earlier that year when the mayor of Welch, a J.H. Witt, who I could not find any information on biographically other than this event, he was facing efforts to impeach him from office. He shot and killed William Johnson Tabor, the sheriff's deputy who was trying to arrest him. Okay. This was in March of 1921. I found this fascinating, so I included it. Quote, several charges, this is from the Bluefield Daily Telegraph. Okay. Several charges had recently been preferred against Mayor Witt, and an effort was being made to impeach him. On Wednesday afternoon, the council was in session and was hearing some of the accusations which had been made against the mayor. It appears that there were two girls implicated in the charges. While the council was sitting behind closed doors, it uh, it is alleged that Mayor Witt broke into the meeting by breaking down the door and demanded to know what was going on. When told of the meeting, he is said to have turned over the table around which the councilmen were sitting and then left. It appears Deputy Sheriff Tabor had taken the girls in a car toward Kimball. En route to Kimball, his car was overtaken by Mayor Witt and the chief of police of Welch, who ordered Tabor to turn the girls over to him. Johnson did so without any argument and returned to Welch, following the machine in which Mayor Witt, the police chief, and the two girls returned to Welch. The machine, they keep saying machine, it's a car. The machine stopped in front of the mayor's home, and he stepped out. Johnson drove his machine just a little ahead of the car and stopped. He walked back, stating it was said that he wanted to talk to Mayor Witt. As he approached Witt, it was said that he was advised not to come any closer, he being Tabor. Uh, With this, Witt pulled pulled his gun and shot twice. Both shots took effect, one entering the lower part of the leg and the other near the hip. The second shot ranged upward, penetrating some of the vital organs. Tabor was rushed to the hospital. Sheriff Hatfield soon reached the scene and excitement ran high throughout the town. Now, just real quick, a sheriff is in charge of county land uh, and a sheriff's deputy uh, takes care of enforcing that. Police chief is in charge of the city. Yeah, yeah, city limits. Yeah, police chief was there when the mayor pulled a gun and shot a sheriff's deputy. Um, Let's see. Uh, at first it was thought that Tabor had received only flesh wounds and Mayor Witt waived preliminary hearing and gave bond for his appearance before Judge Herndon at the next session of the court. After Tabor's death, however, Mayor Witt was rearrested on the charge of murder and placed in jail. 
It was reported here late last evening that Judge Herndon was preparing to hear some of the evidence and would determine if he would permit Witt to give bond. Bill Hatfield had been a pallbearer at Tabor's funeral. And Tabor actually had a long family history. I think he was like the first family member of his family to go to college. And he was related to the first pioneers in that area. Like okay, there was, well, there was a right. whole bunch of shit about uh, yeah. Deputy Tabor. Um, so Bill Hatfield had been a pallbearer at Tabor's funeral. So amidst all this, Sheriff Hatfield had promised Police Chief Hatfield safety in Welch, the county seat of McDowell County, so that he, Police Chief Hatfield from Matuan, which was in yeah. Mingo County, could come and answer charges in court as a part of his due process rights. Right. Of and course, yeah. Second or third cousins. Something. Yeah. I Okay, yeah. they're both Hatfields, but yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, of course, and of course, this is what's getting in the news, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, Sheriff Hatfield was out of the county for the time when his distant cousin, and I could not track down which uh, which uh, W.J. Hatfield um, was related to and, and what okay. which, yeah. you know, which Bill Hatfield it was. Yeah. Um, he had gone to the Craig Healing Springs, which sounds really nice. So. Okay. I guarantee you safe passage. I'm out of here. I got to go sit in mud. Um, okay. Smiling Sid and his fellow police officer from Matewan uh, are unarmed and walking up the stairs to the courthouse with their wives in Welch, uh, which is in McDowell, which is anti-union, and they're from Mingo, right? right? Yeah. yeah. A group of three Baldwin Feltz detectives, including Charles Lively, George Pence, and William Salters, were standing at the top of the stairs. Lively opened fire with two guns, hitting Hatfield multiple times and killing him instantly. Chambers's body was filled with bullets, rolled down the steps, and here's the report from the Baltimore Sun on August 5th, 1921. Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers, Mingo Mountaineers, who were killed on the steps of the courthouse at Welch. By the way, notice the Mountaineers part, right? Yeah. Okay. Keep these mm. things in mind. Like there's there's yeah. certain codes yeah. that get used here. Who were killed on the steps of the courthouse at Welch, McDowell County in a gunfight last Monday, who were unarmed. Their widow told the newspaper men here today. Both Mrs. Hatfield and Mrs. Chambers accompanied their husbands to the court last Monday, where Sid, former police chief, former chief of police at Matewan, was to have answered a charge of being the instigator of the shooting up of Mohawk, McDowell County, last year. The widow said that they or their husbands uh, did not anticipate trouble in Welch and that Hatfield locked his pistols in a traveling bag and Chambers laid aside his arms before starting for the courthouse. The women declared that C.E. Lively, Baldwin Feltz detective, charged with being implicated in the killings, boarded the train on which they were going to Welch early in the morning and followed them about town until it was almost time for them to appear in court. Mrs. Chambers, describing how she and her husband and Sid and his wife went to the courthouse and started for their entrance, said, I heard a shot fired. I turned and looked at Sid as he, and he was falling. Then I looked at my husband and he was falling loose from my arm. The shooting then became general. I saw only two men shooting, and they were C.E. Lively and a short, heavy-set man who wore glasses. Mrs. Hatfield said that she lost consciousness while the shooting was going on. She charged Sheriff Bill Hatfield with negligence in not protecting her husband. Wow. So, Lively... Wow. He was busy. Like, not, not, not enough that he was, you know... Uh, uh, undercover snitch right he, he actually committed 
cold-blooded murder. And he testified before Congress, like, and then went back to commit cold-blooded murder. Cold, yeah. Like, yeah. wow. Yeah. All right. It also appears as though the agents of Baldwin Feltz uh, then grabbed guns to plant at the scene and fired them into the courthouse until they were empty. They placed one in Hatfield's hands and one in his pants and another in Chambers' hand after Lively went down and shot Chambers in the back of his head at extreme close range, just to make sure. Wow. Yeah. Their wives Holy were... shit. Their wives were kept at the house of Sheriff Bill Hatfield to keep them safe. The next day, they returned with their husband's body to Matewan. All three assassins were acquitted, claiming self-defense. The jury took God. 55 minutes to deliberate in April 1922. <sighs> Special place in hell. Yeah. Now, just uh, so you know, uh, yeah. Mayor Witt was acquitted about a month later in his trial due to perjured testimony, uh, which due process, that's how things happen. Um, and he would end up leaving town in September for parts unknown, presumably to father the ultimate warrior. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, after this killing, then shit goes off. Uh, wow. Lively continued to work as a law officer in McDowell County. But he couldn't keep out of trouble. He served multiple sentences for police brutality. Uh, think of what you have to do shock. in 1920s to, yeah, to be to sentenced for police brutality. Jesus. Yeah. And also alcohol possession charges because the Volstead Act. Um, nice. He ended up embroiled in a case that had him accused of assaulting a 13-year-old girl for which he was acquitted. Uh, so some things never change. Uh, but the other man got a life sentence for it. Um, okay. interesting. Uh, hmm. later on in life, he got sentenced to 18 months of hard labor for shooting his 16 year old son in the neck. Yeah. Just a all around lovely individual, just a real prince. Yeah. Now when he got out, his son shot him with a shotgun and served time for that. Well, you know, are we going to judge the kid? Like, really? No. Yeah. Um, you know, I, did, I would did, also did want to least... not be around that guy. So, yeah, you know, in 1962, uh, Lively actually made a decision that I can endorse and support. He committed suicide. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Special place in hell. Yeah, so, here's hoping. There you go. Uh, well, you know, you hope, I believe. So <laughs> there, you, there go. you go. Now, after this, the Union miners <laughs> took up arms and came out down out of the hills. They were ready to fight, and seeing the assassination of their hero in an anti-Union county and that his assassins weren't going to be brought to justice for it, they took it upon themselves to seek and make justice. I want you to so, remember that. This is 1922. Yeah. I'm just going to say these mm -hmm. are the descendants of Scots-Irish. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the Irish, law is not legitimate. The, the law is not legitimate. And the Irish Revolution, like, you know, the Ooh. Easter Rising. Yeah. Is is only a few years prior. That's true. Um, Like, I'm, I'm listening to you describing these things that are going on. And, and like, I keep coming back to Irish Revolutionary Ballads. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> and Apples and Trees. 
Like, yeah. You know, all right. No, so, I, I, I do not disagree. Uh, so, like, holy shit. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, there, there is, of course, that song by Pete Seeger, Which Side Are You On? Yeah. Where he straight up asks, like, are you a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair? <laughs> so like, you have a choice. Um, yeah. yeah, I just I mentioned that because we're about to get to Blair Mountain. Yeah. Um, so uh, they, they're ready to fight. Uh, they're going to make justice for themselves. Now, Little Coal River, that's a, a, a company. Um, these miners began setting up their own union miner armed patrols in advance of this. They already caught the scent okay. of the wind. And in Logan County, yes, that Logan, Logan County, County. Yep. That same one. All right. A sheriff by the name of Don Chaffin set deputies and troopers to this area in response who were then captured, disarmed, and sent fleeing as a result. All right. See, you know, captured disarmed and mm-hmm. sent fleeing yes measured not, response uh-huh not shot full of bullets right right okay now i'm going to get into this in a minute but i need to talk to you about don chaffin um okay you may or may not remember him but or or you may or may not have things twinging but he was the sheriff of logan county west virginia which was the home of the original hatfield clan from the feud right Don Chaffin was married to Mary Mounts and had 10 children. And Mary Mounts was descended from... Well, yeah. But also his father, Francis Marion Chaffin, who had been sheriff of the selfsame county. Francis Marion Chaffin was the son of William Chaffin, who was the brother of Nathaniel Chaffin, who was the father of Levisa Chaffin, the wife of Devil Ants Hatfield. Son of a bitch. Which means that Devil Ants Hatfield and Louisa Chaffin were great aunt and great uncle to Sheriff Don Chaffin of Logan County. Okay. And best as I could figure, Devil Ants Hatfield was also second hus- cousin to William Sidney Hatfield, the police chief of Matewan. It might have been second cousin once removed. I'm not. I could not. Okay, but tracing, but yeah. But they are they are cousins to one another. Yes. This this sheriff and and smiling Sid. Okay. If you go up far enough, yeah. 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 Okay. So Julio fucking Claudian. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, okay. You got you got smiling Sid Hatfield. Yeah. A a hero to unionists everywhere. Yeah. Now you got Don Chaffin, the sheriff of Logan County, whose wife was the granddaughter of Alexander Mounts, the guy who signed the will of Rich Jake Klein. Right. He was known as the boss or the czar of Logan County. Great. He absolutely exerted control over every judge in the county and almost every other public office to the point where a former attorney general of West Virginia said of him, quote, no school teacher was employed without his approval, his being Don Chaffin's. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Now, mine companies loved him, and they paid him to keep unions entirely out of his county. In many ways, he reads like the... of course they did. Yeah. And he reads like the heir apparent to Devil Ants. Um, Eventually, Governor John Jacob Cornwall, who took office in 1917 and only served one term, there was a lot of turnover at the top. Yeah. He had Chaffin investigated. 
And he was able to do so partly because he was popular owing to his dual support, his being Cornwall's dual support of women's suffrage and the war effort. In fact, I did some digging. West Virginia had the highest proportion of volunteers for the war effort in World War One. Huh. Interesting. Now, John Jacob Cornwall took office in 1917. Do you know who he succeeded? I don't know. Henry D. Hatfield. Because, of course. The nephew of Devil Ants Hatfield. The son of Good Lias Hatfield. Well, at least the son of Good Lias and not Bad Lias. Like, you know, I mean. Well, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Now, Governor Hatfield had actually stepped down to go fight in the war. But when he served as governor, he pardoned Mother Jones and several other jailed miners. Okay. All right. But then he also deployed soldiers to destroy socialist newspapers and force miners to agree to the compromises that he devised for labor troubles in 1914. So spotty record. All right. Yeah. So when John Jacob Cornwall took over, I'm sorry, Cornwell uh, took over, he created a special commission to look into Chaffin's payoffs from coal companies. And he found that Chaffin had accepted at least $32,000 per year to keep unions out of Logan County. In modern dollars, that's... $700,000. Son of I looked. A... Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's, and that's 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 pretty major bribery. Right and there. that's just one source of money. One historian pointed out that Chaffin's salary was about 3500 a year, but his net worth was around 350000 a year, which means that annual bribes by coal companies of about 50000 or nearly $1.1 million in today's money. My God almighty. Mm-hmm. Wow. Further, the coal companies were paying more than three dozen of his men's salaries. So he would get people on his uh, payroll through these coal companies. And it was money that was very well spent as Chaff- uh, Chaffin stationed one of his deputies at every railway station in Logan County, specifically charged with identifying and guarding against union organizers. Wow. Yeah. Now, the way that they do this is they would go up to a suspected union organizer uh, and they would uh, tell them either you leave on the next train or, quote, have your head blown off. Wow. Yeah. Or they would just (laughs) arrest them. They wouldn't even bother threatening. They would just arrest them or they would just follow through on the threats. There are a lot of people who disappeared in that time. So. Evidently, Chaffin himself wasn't averse to getting his own hands bloody either. When he suspected J.L. Heiser, the chief clerk of the West Virginia Department of Mines, of being a union organizer, he pistol whipped the guy, clubbed him in the head with a blackjack, and ran him out of the county. When he realized that this was actually a government official, he uh, gave him a $1,000 payment. Sorry. Wow. What, yeah. 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 What what strikes me about mm-hmm. this is the extent to which it highlights how incredibly futile the, the whole the whole society was. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, okay, I mean, you hold an election to to, you know, determine who's going to be your sheriff, but he's the son of the sheriff who came before him. Right. And while he's in office, he he has this this power to do this and he's receiving and he is holding this power yep. in fealty 
yes to you know the the big corporate you know in incorporated in this case yeah. but to to bigger landholders and yeah. you know he's the sheriff of like, the lands he's this, oh, yeah okay yeah like Gee, now Chaffin himself right. was a badass, a legit badass. He'd gotten shot twice in the chest and lived. Uh, All right. Well, yeah. Yeah. Now, the first time he went into another county and was drunk and disorderly. Um, a union vice president told him to leave, and then Chaffin brandished his own gun. The vice president of the local union pulled his own 22 pistol and shot Chaffin in the chest. Um it's 22, so you have a better odds of living through that. Um, yeah. The union vice president was cleared of all charges because it was considered self-defense. <laughs> well, yeah, because Chaffin had been the one to, you know, pull it yeah. down first. So, yeah. The second time Chaffin was in his own office in Logan County, and a miner came in and shot him in the chest. Okay. Ballsy move. Probably yeah. didn't end well for the miner in question. By all accounts, I couldn't find out what happened to the miner. That's what's wild. Chaffin got up and just walked over to the hospital. <laughs> like, if he wasn't uh. such a turd, I would really like this guy. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, in in Deadwood, uh, mm-hmm. Jake, Jake Schweringen. Yeah. Like, he's evil. Like, Thoroughly. He's a bad, bad man. But he's very but- compelling. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, my God. Yeah, Yeah. geez. So a third time, by the way, he is only shot twice. A third time, somebody came into his office again, threatening to shoot him dead. He draws his gun and says, "We'll hop into hell together then." (laughs) And the guy lost his nerve. Um. So, well, wow, (laughs) like. I mean, I, I suppose after a certain point, you you just get to a point where you know the the shock of the adrenaline hitting your system isn't what it used to be. <laughs> no, it feels like in Forrest Gump where he's like, and then I got another medal, and I met another president. Yeah, I got, like, another, yeah. I got shot in the chest again. You know, again, ruined another shirt. Yeah. So. <laughs> so back to wow. August of 1921, right? Chaffin had been making plans all summer long for something like this to happen. Now, if you remember, in Mingo County, (laughs) martial law had only just been struck down. And there was plenty of feet of clay law officials who weren't moving with any real speed to free the miners that had been arrested at that time. As a result, there's actually a rally in Charleston, West Virginia, where Frank Keeney and Fred Mooney presented their demands, including freeing imprisoned miners, uh, they presented these demands to the newly seated governor, Ephraim Morgan. Morgan, as any good governor would do, summarily rejected their demands, and so the miners began to agitate and march over and above the objections of Mother Jones, because she was like, y'all, this is going to end violently, and that will not benefit you. You are not trained in violence. They are. Like, that was her objection. Wow. So when Mother, Mother, Mother Jones, Jones is like... telling you to stand down. Like, like... I tell you what, um, literally the ghost of Molly Maguire is standing in front of you telling you this is a bad plan, right? Now you are going to lose your hat. Do yeah. not do this. Yeah. And and knowing that it would be such a bloodbath, she knew that it would break the backs of the miners and 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 therefore their union. 
Well, they didn't listen to her, and they marched anyway, and they organized from Charleston to Mingo. Well, the problem with going from Charleston to Mingo is it's going to go right through Logan County. Yeah. And Chaffin is not having it. He swore, quote, no armed mob will cross Logan County. Okay. And he put plans into place to make sure that it wouldn't. And this all hinged on stopping them as they crossed Blair Mountain. Now, given his language, Chaffin's language, and their outrage, and the overall conditions of everything, the miners grew more and more determined to march straight through Logan County. Yeah, that that about tracks. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're going to free their fellow miners in Mingo County, goddammit. Yeah. Chaffin's plan was more than simply, we'll stop them. Um, It included a trained citizen militia, coal workers, mine guards, and his own deputies. And he had been building fortifications on Blair Mountain since June of uh, of 21. No, 21? Yeah. Um, Now, under the funding auspices of Logan County Coal Operators Association, Chaffin had been using that money to train people to hide uh, and supply weapons caches the whole summer in that area. And he called them all together on August 25th on the slopes of Blair Mountain. And he actually had rented three biplanes to fly over and do reconnaissance. Right. And drop fucking bombs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. But I didn't need to. There were minor skirmishes, which I get a kick out of saying, um, but uh, between Chaffin's forces and the miners for much of August 25th and into the wee hours of August 26th, there were no airplane bombings as yet, although the president of the United States was threatening to send in bombers. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is uh, Sir Fuxalot. This is Warren G. Harding. <laughs> um <laughs> Now, the United yeah. Mine Workers leaders convinced them to go home peaceably. Like, yo, that let's let's not. This do is that. this is not a good idea. Which totally yeah. would have been the end of it. Probably, Chaffin got his victory. The miners showed force. Negotiations could take place, but then the West Virginia State Police escalated things by trying to arrest the very leaders who defused the situation, and this led to a shootout, which killed multiple miners. And shit was on. Chaffin enlarged and bolstered his forces. He dropped leaflets on the miners that ordered them to disperse or else, and he bolstered the town of Logan's defenses in case the miners broke through. And at this point, Chaffin loaded up the planes with pipe bombs and tear gas, which was used on the miners when the battle broke out in the early uh, early, uh, part, uh, early morning hours of August 29th. And after four days of fighting with lots of miner deaths, numbers probably in the hundreds, and several law enforcement and coal company deaths, maybe numbering in the dozens, federal troops arrived on August 2nd, or on, um, on I'm sorry, on, on uh, September 2nd. Now, since okay. a lot of miners were vets, they weren't willing to fire in federal troops. The commander of the miners' army was a United Mine Workers of America local chapter president named Bill Blizzard. And because they'd been charged with murder halfway through the battle, Keeney and Mooney fled to Ohio. Blizzard then took over command during the battle, and it was during this battle that miners began to wear red bandanas around their necks so that they could identify Mm -hmm. their allies in the din of battle. Yep. Rednecks were the allies. Now, once federal troops arrived, the miners feared arrest and weapons uh, confiscation, and as such, they hid their weapons before departing. 
Nearly a thousand miners were charged with varying degrees of crimes from treason against West Virginia to murder to conspiracy to commit murder, accessory to murder. Most were acquitted, including Bill Blizzard. Blizzard was actually expelled from the Union by John Llewellyn Lewis after his 1922 trial. Um, this was a reprisal in reaction to the opportunities that the coal companies took to crush unions in West Virginia in the wake of the battle. So it's kind of like, dude, you fucked us by leading this battle. It's like, I didn't lead the battle until I had to, but oh, okay. And there's, there's a whole. Well, and there's, and there's always like you, you and I are both union thugs and Mm -hmm. one of the, one of the weaknesses of unions as organizations is there's always internal politics and, and yeah. So yeah. No, yeah. God damn it. All right. Well, once Roosevelt is president, Blizzard then is get gets brought back into the fold of the United Mine Workers in 1933. But he himself ended up carrying quite the grudge against Lewis. And they ended up in a fist fight. Well, they didn't. He ended up in a fist fight with Lewis's little brother in 1955. Then he gets expelled again. <laughs> so... <laughs> Okay, so wait, we're hold thugs. on. So 30, um, 30 yeah. years later. Yes. So, I mean, by that time, he had to be in his 60s. Easily. And he's... he's... <laughs> Rolling up Hell those yeah. sleeves, throwing them bones. Yeah. Hell yeah, man. Mm-hmm. Now, right. with the passage of the Wagner Act in 1934, the door was opened once again for the United Mine Workers of America to reorganize. And they did so in 35. And actually, it's their organizational efforts that set the template and allowed uh, uh, other organizations, other other um, industries, workers, to uh, organize as well. And they ended up going and taking that and then porting it over. And the United Mine Workers helped to organize a lot of other workers in other industries, steel, auto, etc. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask about the UAW. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. Now, Chaffin was the arresting officer for many of those who had been put on trial. Okay. After the battle, he used his celebrity status as the guy who helped with the the Battle of Blair Mountain against those pesky union workers to continue to gain power. Power. He was even a delegate at the DNC in 1924. Because this is, you know, back before the great swivel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now, Chaffin and a deputy of his named Tennis Hatfield. <laughs> Tennis is short for Tennyson. Tennyson Hatfield is the youngest son of Devil Lance Hatfield and Lavisa Chaffin Hatfield. Seriously? Dead fucking serious. All right. Wow. They got back into moonshine. <laughs> so, so, so no shit. He went from sheriff of the county yeah. to, to bootlegging. Well, he stayed sheriff. While he was moving and got into bootleg, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah okay, obvi. Clear, clear violation silly of, of the Volstead Act, yeah, yeah, silly, silly of me not to, not to, you know, yeah. realize that, yeah. Now Tennyson oh, God, implicated one guy be, my God Almighty. <laughs> now Tennyson ah. implicated Sheriff Don Chaffin, uh, in in his trial. And that led to Don Chaffin being convicted of a federal crime and therefore sentenced to two years in a federal prison in Georgia. 
the maximum sentence at the time and a $10,000 fine. For bootlegging. For bootlegging. All of the other shit he did, he finally got taken out on a bootlegging charge. Don't we see this all the time, though? Well, yeah, no, I know. But, yeah. like... So so here's here's a question. What what uh-huh. happened? What happened to tennis? Did tennis, you know, fall down a holler? Well, the witnesses against him were given special protections, given Chaffin's violent outbursts and tremendous yeah. power. And um, he, uh, you know, one of the things that Chaffin relied upon was personal interactions and personal intimidation. He was gone for a couple of years. And after serving just a portion of his term, he gained parole and he came back to Logan County to find that he'd lost a lot of the influence that he'd previously enjoyed. Okay. So Tennyson was safe. All right. Now, as this is about the depiction of the families, why would a movie about the Hatfields and McCoys be popular in November of 23? Well, look what's happened. Listen to the names of everybody that was involved in this, you know, right. modern day, uh, modern day tombstone story. Yeah. I mean, the Hatfields are all over the news all the way through the early 1920s. So that alone could do it. But also there's a severe fracturing occurring in the Democratic Party. Do they go national racism and KKK or do they go city based and become a coalition party? The answer was the latter. Um, but it was a very hotly debated topic in the run-up to the 1924 DNC. Uh, I found this in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Quote, the chief difficulty in the platform for the DNC in 1924 is the Ku Klux Klan and Catholicism. The solution is to give the platform to the one one faction and the ticket to the other. This, by the way, I'm going to break out for a second. This is why Al Smith got the nod, because he was Catholic. Okay. So right. we'll give the platform to the KKK, but we'll give the you know leadership to, to the Catholic. All right, back to this. It also became clear that the dividing line is not so much between Protestants and Catholics as between two contending views and policies and interests, which are not Catholic versus Protestant so much as locality versus locality and candidate versus candidate. So in other words, they're getting into cult of personality. Okay. So in other words, huh. uh, there's these growing sharp divisions amongst otherwise similarly minded folks along an insurmountable differences. Okay. A funny movie poking fun at the old differences using what was readily available at the time makes a lot of sense given the 1920s and the desire to escape the god-awful news cycle and the influenza PTSD and post-war PTSD that people were suffering. All right, yeah, that all that all tracks. Yeah. This is the roaring 20s, goddammit, and it's time to laugh at these things. Yeah. So, I can see that. Keaton's movie definitely advertised as being about a northerner going into Kentucky and falling for into their foibles. So, also, you know, look at these funny hill people. Uh one of the uh one of the reviews said, "Quote a mild-mannered New York youth of 1830 who lands in the midst of the bitter Kentucky feud. This is according to the uh, according to the Carbon County Chronicle in Red Lodge, Montana. Another, uh, 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 according to uh, the reviewer and another, quote, our hospitality is something new in the comedy field. I just love, just real quick, I love that we're discussing something new in the comedy field. Because it's yeah. 1923. There's not much. <laughs> yeah. Like... 
So shit could be new. Yeah. It's wild. It's just, it's wild to me because this is the first movie that depicts the Hatfields and McCoys. Um, So our hospitality is something new in the comedy field. It depicts a thrilling Kentucky feud and a gripping love story in the days when the American railroads were first going built. According that's according to the fallen standard and fallen Nevada. In fact, okay. in most ads that I found that were throughout the country, our hospitality made use of the Kentucky references as often as they could. Interestingly, Call uh-huh. of the Wild also released around this time. I just I found that kind of interesting because they would always be on the same page. But yeah. it just so Kentucky is becoming mimetic as look at this backward place of a of foregone time. Which which on the one hand mm-hmm. is you know, awfully reductionist and, and, um, you know, prejudiced against folks from there. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's a really interesting level on which that's whitewashing. Right. In the vein of, um, lost cause. Yes. You know, the, the simplification kind of cuts both ways. Yes. It's like, you know, we're painting these folks as, you know, backward kind of dummies, but at the same time, mm-hmm. we're we're doing it in a way that is um, humorous and takes their teeth out. Yep. Uh, which it I find... It objectifies them. Yeah. And, we, and neuters and them. Yeah. And s- separates them from the violence that is definitely fucking there. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, just look at just look at what actually happened. Mm-hmm. You know, in nineteen that's something else that, that gets me about this is is this is this isn't the old West. This isn't the eighteen eighties. This that's isn't right. you know, this, this isn't this isn't out west. Right. Um and the level of bloody violence uh that's involved in this and the level of just outright like the murder of uh, Sid Hatfield, right? Broad daylight on the yeah. courthouse steps. I mean, mm-hmm. it flies in the face of law and order. Mm-hmm. And so, to an extent, for anybody in the Northeast reading about these stories, for anybody in really any other part of the country, yeah, it's salacious um, as hell. It's it's incredibly salacious, and and it would paint a picture of oh my god, these people are all howling barbarians. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which why is there an in, why is there a national interest in depicting these people this way? And yeah. and which is kind of what I'm going to what I'm kind of circling around toward. Yeah. I would also point out that in, in the same like within a year of this. Right. You had the Tulsa massacre. Yeah. Where you also had airplanes being used. Mm-hmm. And you Bombs also being had, dropped yeah. automatic weapons being used in the streets as as soon as we get back, having figured out that you could use airplanes as weapons, the 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 not not private citizens doing this, but public officials are doing this. Yeah, local public yeah. officials. What I really what I really find interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is is this isn't this isn't separated by like, OK, well, you know, it's the state government coming in. It's county officials. It's the sheriff. It's, uh, you know, police chiefs and yep. and you know, um, this this is this is stuff that's being done to neighbors. Yes, 
by neighbors. It, you know, I mean, which which I have a hard time wrapping my head around. Like, well, and yet the, the, Asa Harmon McCoy gets murdered by yeah. a neighbor. Yeah, but it's it's I don't I don't know if it's a time period thing or a I mean it it, it feels like a like a setup at this point in this in this series of ours to to say you know is it a regional thing um you know because like that's kind of what we're talking about here is perceptions of the region but you know um and and it also now as i say that Mm -hmm. um the other thing that comes up is you know when second amendment supporters argue with each other um there are there are folks that you know get really hard over about well you know we gotta we gotta have we gotta have weapons to protect ourselves against against the government you know we gotta prevent tyranny by the government and this and what we're hearing here what you're pointing out just reinforces the position I wind up taking in these debates which is you don't understand I don't care about carrying a weapon against federal military. The government I'm worried about being tyrannical is local law enforcement. Well, like, and in our own time, we have something similar. Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. And and the Black Panthers had the right of it. Like, yeah. You know. Uh, I would point I'm, out that one of the things that I think seizes people's imagination about this particular situation, yeah. this particular spate of violence, both in the Hatfields McCoys and then in the their descendants you know lo- look at how they keep showing up is that this violence is not racial no and i think that's what makes it special for the time because you have oh, the yeah. red summer <laughs> you yeah. had you had 30 race riots where white people attacked black people in 30 different places yeah and you just specifically name checked Tulsa yeah you know you know, you you had, um, I mean, in California, you had all kinds of anti-Chinese violence and anti-Japanese yeah. violence. Up yeah. and down the coast, you had anti-Japanese and anti-Chinese violence. You know, you had anti-Hispanic violence. Um, all along the border. Everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. You know, in the um, Southwest. Yeah. You, you've got lynchings everywhere, and almost all of them are racially biased. I mean, you had a, yeah. a, a slaughter of Italian immigrants in, in Louisiana. Yeah. This violence is decidedly non-racial. Yeah. And I think that might be what makes it special and why it's so eye-catching. Okay. So. Yeah. Now, let's fast forward to 1938. Okay. Um, In 1938, we see a second film depiction of the Hatfields and McCoys. So you had 23 at 38. So 15 years 15 in between. Years. Half a generation. Okay. Yep. Um, Mary Melodies. Uh, has a cartoon called A Feud There Was. And this is actually the first appearance of Elmer Fudd. Um, this is a feud. This is not the one you're thinking. Um, this okay, is not the Bugs no. Bunny one. This is this is not. Okay. This is a feud between the McCoys and the Weavers who are two feuding hillbilly backwoods clans. In the Weaver cabin, it's all pretty slow going and lazy. Uh, the snores have a power uh, the sloth of the family is physically represented. Their snoring actually helps them saw logs by virtue of the fact uh, that the they they've tied hanky sails 
um to the to the saw and as okay. they snore back and forth it sends the saw back and forth okay the cat is lazy the dog is lazy the apple that wants to fall from the tree is lazy and all the males have long skinny hillbilly beards Okay. Um, the only thing that really wakes the Weaver family up is their chance to feud with their rivals, the McCoys, and vice versa, by the way. And after a wake-up number where they all sing once a microphone drops in front of them, which is kind of interesting, the Weavers are all holding rifles, single-strapped overalls, and pants tied with strings, one or the other. One of them okay. has a foot poking through his shoe, and then they fall right back asleep on the porch when a commercial on the radio comes on. Okay. Roy Rogers got voice credit for this cartoon. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, wow. All right. So what I notice here is that the, the house is run down. The family is largely male and all gathered yeah. about being slothful. Yeah. Indolent. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, while they're lounging about, a baby weaver climbs up to the chimney to call out to the McCoys as skunks in an impossibly deep voice that you know makes it funny. Yeah. All of whom have the McCoys, all of whom have red beards to contrast the black beards of the Weavers. They immediately okay. start shooting at the Weavers with the bullet holes spelling out, do you mean it? Question mark. And the Weavers then return fire with the message, yes, we mean it, but it's Y-A-S because they can't spell. All right. Wow. They, they all go back to their homes. A bell rings, and we see a boundary line clearly marked as such between the two homes. The gunfire goes back and forth, increasing in absurdity. At one point, or at this point, we see Elmer Fudd show up. He is, uh, and it, it's labeled Elmer Fudd Peacemaker. And he's on a scooter, a little motorized scooter, coming into the frame, yodeling. And most of the cartoon is the McCoys and the Weavers shooting at each other as the premise for various gags. Uh, Elmer first goes to the Weaver house and implores them to put an end to this meaningless massacre and let there be peace. And he gets shot in the ass by the Weavers who laugh at him. We're then shown the ultimate in combining laziness and violence as one of the Weavers has set up a treadmill of sorts that delivers a gun to him to pull the trigger while barely paying attention. And at this point, a McCoy asks the audience if any of them are Weavers and one member stands up and, and shoots at him, answering in the affirmative. Okay. Yeah. Now then so who... so the meta mm -hmm. is is there. All yes. Right? Yes. Now uh the uh FUD then makes the same piece to the McCoys who also shoot him in the ass for the same troubles. And then we see a McCoy and a Weaver literally shooting each other in the face back and forth over the boundary line, neither one wearing shoes. Um, and they're repeatedly shooting each other in the face. Okay. A sheriff comes by, he blows a whistle and points out to the McCoy family or, or points out to one of the McCoys that he's offsides. His foot is over the boundary line. Um, that's a five yard penalty for Yun's bud. So okay. Yun's, right? Yeah. Elmer drives his scooter to the middle of the fight in the arena where the boundary uh, or in the area where the boundary line is and again implores both, both sides to seek peace. This infuriates both sides again to the point where they both come out to the boundary line where he stands to make him say that again. You know, say that again. And they actually all say it as a group. They all say, say that again. And he repeats himself. I said we must have peace. And then they all jump him in a giant cartoon cloud brawl. Right. Uh, and when the cloud clears, 
he's actually knocked them all out and we see all of their bare feet as they're all laid out and he leaves yodeling and he gets shot in the ass by the audience member who yells good night yeah cartoons back then were a special kind of Mm -hmm. storytelling all right now to recap there's nothing in the movie since 1923, which followed all sorts of news about the Hatfield specifically and the region in general during the Cold Wars. And right. then it's 1938. And suddenly there's a cartoon about two very stereotyped families who get up and fight over a border. Now, I'm not saying that the victory over the Franco government or the encouraged annexation of the Sudetenland or the Anschluss in Austria or the Nuremberg laws in Germany or anything like that actually inspired a cartoon that was shown in movie theaters. But at the same time, that's a lot of conflict over borders among similar people that's in the air. Yeah. And, and I'm, to an American mm-hmm. standpoint, it's all a bunch of funny foreigners. Right. Yeah. And I'm not saying that Elmer Fudd Peacemaker is exactly Neville Chamberlain, but I am saying that they dressed alike and had similar approach until Elmer whooped up on everyone's ass, Stone Cold style. All right. Yeah. Now, a year later... Drawing on the same stereotype, Fleischer Studios released the seven-minute short Musical Mountaineers. You may remember this one. Okay. Betty Boop's car runs out of gas on her one of her uh, first post-Haze cartoons. Okay. She's driving all over the place when she passes a sign that says, quote, Feud County, beware of stray bullets. All right. Now, at this point, it's becoming increasingly popular to depict hillbillies on screen. And who's more famous than those two families, right? Yeah. Um, and she says, this would happen a thousand miles from nowhere. She's talking about an exasperation yeah. about the gas. Now, that's something, too, right? Yeah. This is a, a remote place. Yeah. Yeah. Then the camera pants. <clears throat> You could say something while I'm coughing. Good heavens. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I, I started uh. to, and then I thought, well, you know, you fix it post. But yeah. <laughs> so the camera pans. Oh, good heavens. I'm pausing it. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize for the technical difficulties. The trouble is not with your throat, but with mine. Okay, so she's a thousand miles from nowhere, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then the camera pans to a sign written complete with backwards letters and abbreviations. Property line. Hatfield crowds stay off in this land or get blowed often. Zonk Peters. Now, one day. Yeah. Now, one family is named and the other's name has been changed. We see this again. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually an odd through line for all the cartoons. Then we're treated to a shoeless hillbilly with a corncob pipe dragging his own plow through the earth. Uh, lazily, I might add. And as soon as he hears a lazy bird sound a trumpet, he says, quote, must be the call to arms, end quote. And he pulls a lever on the plow, which then turns it into a tank. And then we see another hillbilly, also with a pipe and no shoes, sleeping in the tree. So, so far, we're seeing a lot of depictions of sloth amongst these particular people. They are then yeah. awakened to begin their violence based on false pretenses. There's an interesting kind of uh, continuity between that and the anti-Celtic mm-hmm. prejudice 
of the English, mm-hmm. uh, you know, back in the you know seventeen hundreds, that like the only the only reason they roused themselves is to to you know enter into rebellion. It's it's weird. Yeah, <laughs> like like the the ways that that these things choose to rhyme is mm-hmm. kind of bizarre. Mm-hmm. And again, I would point out most of the uh, violence that we've seen has been racialized and most depictions of people who are lazy and slothful are not of white people who are lazy and slothful. This is, this is new. This is a weird thing. Yeah. Almost as to say that these people are not worthy of whiteness. Yeah. Okay. And therefore, if you're going to take their property and claim eminent domain for something, that's okay. Oh, all right. Okay. So, uh, now this violence, like I said, is on false pretenses. Uh, he thinks that the Hatfields are shooting at him and he falls out of the tree in his eagerness to shoot back. Um, he then runs back to his house where there are several more of his clan sleeping and he rouses them to be ready for the Hatfields. The mom of the family is preparing the rifles and everyone's panicking. And then Betty Boop shows up at the door seeking help. After all, her car ran out of gas. The youngest is looking through a knot hole in the door and says that someone is coming. Quote, is it the Hatfields? Is it the sheriff? Ain't no insurance, man. End quote. Mm. Each by different members of the family is saying this. Okay. Now he relates back to them that it's a, quote, Ferner. They all hide and Betty knocks a few more times and then opens the door. She says, quote, anybody home? Oh, it looks like the people who moved in don't live here anymore. End quote. <laughs> okay, weird construction there. Well, the house is in a state of severe disrepair. There's holes in the floor, there's broken mirrors, there's broken furniture, and suddenly everybody pops out of everywhere and holds a shotgun on her. And they ask, quote, who be ya? Now she explains that she's a dancer who ran out of gas. And one of them says, quote, give her two give her a two-bar pickup, Ma. And then the mom slaps her barefoot twice on the floor, and they all start shooting at her feet to make Betty dance. They all compliment her dancing in a very backwoods way. Quote, wheel, holy cucumber, she sure can dance. Okay. And That's one a of very them, New York imagination of what a, it what is. a backwoods kind of thing would sound like. Right? Yeah. <laughs> So, and then one of them pulls a broken, uh, slapped together guitar out of his beard and plays along for her. There you go. And then the mom takes out uh, one of uh, takes out one of her hairs and strings it along her shotgun and starts fiddling with it. Okay. And then other relatives use other improvised instruments because they're too poor to have instruments. You see. Yeah. Uh, the mom starts dancing along with her giant bare feet. So also you've got. You know, the women in these backwoods places are ugly. Yeah. Wow. Everyone continues using improvised instruments, including squeezing a pig, blowing on a liquor jug, and tying a bone to their toes to tap a turtle. Okay. And then the last one is (laughs) out there, but yeah. All right. And then the women of the family start to sing along, quote, there ain't no gold in them thar hills. It's might cold in them thar hills. And then there's other lyrics about chewing tobacco and smoking. While they continue to sing, they tell Ma, quote, Ma, get the stuff, end quote, who then comes back with a jug of corn drippings, 
right. Now it's 38, so alcohol is now legal again. Yeah. Uh, but the idea of moonshiners is still very, very, you know, big. Yeah. Um, and she says, come on, Betty, we'll help you. Um, and then she fills up Betty's car with the moon with the corn drippings. And of course, that's Ethel. So yeah. the car takes so, off. There you go. Super stereotypical and just basically there to be featured in that way that Betty Boop kind of did things, right? Yeah. Now, I can't help but wonder if this is some sort of reaction to the pushback by the people who were displaced by the TVA. Okay. So it's a super rural area in a terrible state of affairs, and over 125,000 people were displaced and forced by law to move. And while stories speckled the newspapers from about 1933 onward, there doesn't actually appear to have been a coherent organized resistance that I could find. So mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to have been it. It's more likely that by 38, what's really happening is that enough migration to the cities from rural areas had actually already occurred due to the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, that such populations were still easily visible and easy targets for broad humor amongst the growing urban populations. Okay, that makes sense. Honestly, it seems like the best explanation since by 1940, more than 2.5 million people had moved from rural areas in the Great Plains to urban centers. And given California's hostility to the 200,000 who were moving uh, here from Oklahoma, Arkansas, Kansas, North Texas at all, it would make sense that this would be the popular zeitgeist amongst animators. Yeah. In California alone, 125 LAPD officers joined the newly created CHP to operate outside of the LAPD's jurisdiction at our border with Arizona. They were called Mm -hmm. the Bum Brigade. Yeah. And they were essentially bouncers for California, which the ACLU got recalled, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. They they were they were formed specifically. Mm hmm in order to deal with the influx of, of people coming into California from mm-hmm. the dust bowl. Right. Like, I mean, that's, that's not the explanation. That's not the official explanation, but it's pretty fucking that's blatant that that's yeah. exactly what they were there to do. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if they weren't sending home citizens of America to Mexico, cause they were brown enough to claim that they were mm-hmm. Mexican. So, despite the geographic differences between the Great Plains states and the Tug River, <laughs> the cultural <laughs> the cultural <laughs> shorthand is largely the same. Yeah. Um, the animators of these two cartoons grew up with the news of what was going on in the Cold Wars. That's when they were kids. Yeah. They grew up with the names of the Hatfields and McCoys traipsing through the newspaper and newsreels as they sat at the table eating breakfast with their parents or waiting for a movie. So when you see new folks covered in a day's worth of travel dust, wearing threadbare coveralls, speaking with a different accent than you, and walking or driving a jalopy, it's kind of easy to conflate the two cultures. And when the present-day newspapers cover the migration of such people in weighted terms like horde or invasion, it's easy to adopt these uh, prejudices and have the homeless camps along the rivers back up those prejudices too. Yeah. No wonder that a woman driving on her own in a really nice roadster becomes our psychopomp for meeting these people and encountering their strange, clannish backwards and backwoods ways. Yeah, all right. Okay. Boop, boop, ba-doop. Yeah, makes sense. 
So, and I think I'm going to stop it there because then we can get into Spike Jones's first music video. Uh, okay. Yeah. It gets weirder. Um, <laughs> Hard to imagine, but okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So anyway, what have you gleaned? Um, it, so much. Um, the the continuity of names is kind of kind of a mind fuck, isn't it? Though, uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, when you think about it, the the feud ended in in the eighteen eighties. Yep, or eighteen nineties even, and uh, you know, the Cold Wars are you know forty years after that, so it kind of makes sense that okay, well, it's been one generation, so yeah, yeah. And especially when families are as large and and convoluted, and multi generational, and multi you know, and and everything is yeah. so multi generational. It it you know, thinking about it for a minute, it kind of makes sense that well, yeah. I mean, a prominent family that has that many members is going to remain a prominent family. You know, yep. members of that family are still going to remain in prominence in that kind of in that kind of environment. Like that makes sense, but like as you're listing the names of all these people, it's kind of like gee, many <laughs> fucking Christmas. Seriously, yeah, another goddamn Hatfield. <laughs> like, how many of these motherfuckers were there? You know, yeah. Uh, and the answer is a horde of them. Uh, <laughs> and again, I would I would push back and challenge you just on on our terms and our expectations, and the weight behind how many of these people are there. There's something going on there in our own minds. Well, yeah, I mean, that yes. absolutely prejudices against all yeah. of these people. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, I, I also find it interesting that the Hatfield name keeps coming up into the 1920s, 1930s. We, we don't, we don't hear anything about McCoys. Yep, and we can definitely. Uh, like one of the things we can assume from that is, well, we can, we can kind of tell who won, huh? You know, <laughs> like the McCoys suffered out? so much worse from what oh. happened. Oh yeah. Like it's, it's really clear which, which family came out on top uh, just by virtue of these people continue in the historical record. These kind of disappear, you know? Um, And that's, that's a legacy right there. Yeah. Really and then is. the and and then the other thing is what you pointed out about in in these depictions, you know, in the first cartoon, one of the families is the the McCoys, and then the other one's the Weavers, mm -hmm. which is like, why why okay why are you going to use one name and and get rid of the other one, and then and then in the next iteration it's the Hatfields and the whoever it was, and and. So why why stick with one of the names? The Peters, literally, by the way, Hatfield yeah, and Peters. Peters. Thank you. Yeah. Why why only edit one name? That and that was a strange through line, and it happens throughout. Like it really does. You know, like every um, cartoon they will take one name and not the other. Yeah, and that that's I. I like that could be its own its own psychosocial discussion about like well you know we want to have one name so everybody understands what we're referencing like that's not going to be fucking obvious right 
you know, uh, but, you know, we don't want to have both names because, uh, you know, for the same reason that, like, the name, the term hooligan is a thing. Right. You know, um, we we can't actually say hoolahan. So we're we're going to we're going to say hooligan instead. Sure. Everybody's going to know because we're going right, to say it with right. a wink. But like and then that turned and then it turned into a general term. You know, yeah, it became mimetic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's there are so many layers to this onion um, and so many of them are <laughs> are for one reason or another deeply troubling. <laughs> yeah. Like, Wow. Well, I just love that you had like within a two year period, you have a sheriff Chaffin who yeah. is directly, you know, who is related to uh, you know, Devil, Devil Anson and his wife. Yeah. You have a police chief Hatfield who is related to Devil Ants. Yeah. And you have a sheriff Hatfield who I couldn't find the relation, but you know, I'm sorry, no. That <laughs> clearly in this yeah. in this region, it's the same. Yeah. And yeah. and it's not like that anywhere else in the country, this is a common name. Yeah, and they're only a couple counties over from each other. Yeah. Like, and, come on. and they're all like, I mean, you have all three of these, and they're on such different sides. And like yeah. it's 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 they're, irreconcilable. They're... Yeah, well, they're they're direct descendants of the participants in a in a kin feud. Mm-hmm. They are kin, right. and yet and yet now, uh, forty years later, it is it is they're still engaging in the same kind of violence. Right but now, now it's occupational feuds. It's it's occupational, which then makes you wonder. Again, like you mentioned in the first episode, is like how how legitimate is the kin part of this? Right. In the original feud, is it is it just no no? This is about property and and money. Oh, I'm gonna get deeper into that feud. Too, you know, um, so as, as we go, because my God, it gets deep and weird as to who <laughs> does what, and like like why are you? Why is this guy? This guy is a McCoy and he he is fighting on the Hatfield side and he gets life in prison yeah, for his oh yeah. crimes against no, the McCoys. Gets, like Yeah, it gets it gets I, I know from from what mm-hmm. I do know historically, I know mm-hmm. it gets truly bizarre. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, you know, it, it kind of points to the complexity of of a feud such as that, right? You can't yeah. just cut the butter square and be like, yeah. okay, everybody on this side is a McCoy and therefore they're unionists, and everybody on this side is a Hatfield and therefore they're Confederates. Yeah. No, um it's none of that. Like the 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 color of the coat barely mattered. Yeah. Because such other things mattered a lot more. And then you're yeah. like, wait, you literally killed this guy's cousin, but then you bought land from him? Like yeah. it's yeah. Well, and 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 part of that that issue kind of makes me wonder. Outside of the context of the feud, mm-hmm. within the wider culture of the region at the time, what was the threshold of violence? You know, well, how mm-hmm. how normalized how normalized was very violence? You know, so I mean, like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm going to buy the property from him because, like, you know people kill people it's it's a thing you know right you know um one of the interesting things that that you get studying you know if you if you get into the the legal and social history of of hema 
is the extent to which the threshold of violence was remarkably low in right. early modern Europe. You know, yeah. Um, in England, there there are stories about you know uh, chroniclers who decry uh, the frequency of of violence in in alehouses. You mm. know, there's there's a specific term to refer to. Essentially, it's really a short sword, but it's referred to as an alehouse dagger mm. that was a common thing carried by ordinary people, not nobles, but you know peasant class folks. That was sure. you know a dagger with an eighteen inch blade on it. You know, because you'd get into a fight in the right. house and, you know, and everybody just carried a sidearm. Like, what, what yeah. the fuck? You know. Oh, and um, speaking of long ass daggers, like it was not uncommon for a fight to turn into a stabbing. Yeah. Um, we're going to get into that when we talk about Nancy McCoy's brother. Right. Uh, it's just it's 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 wild how. Again, you know, I, I struggle with any culture that treats the truth as a mobile convenient tool. tool. Yeah. Yeah. And and very often you'll hear you'll read testimony of like, you know, no, I didn't stab him. And it's like there were 14 witnesses who all said <laughs> you stabbed him and three people who bought you drinks for stabbing him later. Yeah. Um <laughs> I like the addition to that second detail. Yeah. You know, it's not it's like, just not just there's a bunch of people that said you did. Right. There are a bunch of people that like patted you on the back and right. said, Good job, add a boy. Yeah. Yeah. So also, just... um, you know, the knife sticking out of his ribs, uh, kind of tends to Right. <laughs> like like you know. we have multi we have testimony about what exactly killed him and it was steel poisoning. Yeah. So you know. it just you know, but all, yeah. all we were doing just a little sticking. What? Yeah, you know, it's like um, with... we're not gelatinous cubes, sir. Uh, <laughs> a little sticking with an Arkansas toothpick, right? You know, like, and again, I mean, just even the use of that word, right? What, what you just said, yeah, Arkansas yeah. toothpick. Like, yeah, I, even if it's self-imposed as a nickname, yeah, there is a cultural weight that carries. Oh yeah. Oh, they're with that, huge. you know, yeah, big time. Just, yeah. So yeah. All right. Well, cool. um, can't wait to hit you with Spike Jones next next time. Uh oh, there will be lyrics read. Uh oh, just so no. you know. Yeah. Okay. So uh you got any uh books you want to recommend? Um, not at present. No, okay. I do not. How about you? Yeah, actually I'm gonna tell folks uh go read Thunder in the Mountains. Uh, the West okay. Virginia Mine War of 1920-21. Definitely right. think that's worth reading. Um, you can find it pretty pretty decently priced if you go for the, the paperback. Um, but uh, very good movie, or movie, very good book. Mm. Um, and uh, actually, there is a movie called Meituan. Um, I've oh, not okay. seen it, so watch at your own risk, but let me know how it was. Um, okay. But yeah, Thunder of the Mountains, fantastic book dealing with the Cold Wars. So I really think... Uh, that combined with what I gave last week, uh, good companion pieces for understanding this period of time. So, nice. All right. Yeah. Uh, do well. Neither of us want to be found, but people can in no. fact find our our uh, our podcast. How can they do that? Well, yeah. I mean, you're listening to us, so obviously you found us somehow. Uh, we are. Uh, we can be found on the internet at wubba 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 dot geekhistorytime dot com. Uh, or on uh, Stitcher and the Apple Podcast app, uh, wherever it is that you found us, 
please uh, give us the five-star rating that Damien has clearly earned uh, with his uh, research. And uh, subscribe, of course, please um, go through the archive and uh, pick a topic uh, that catches your interest because uh, we have a wide variety of them, uh, quite a selection. And yeah, that's a, that's I believe that's it since neither one of us want to be found. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, for A Geek History of Time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling 20s.